temple. And he was a godly man by many accounts. But Lord, he understood that he was a man of unclean lips. And he lived among a people of unclean lips. And that his eyes had seen the Lord, he cursed himself, knowing that he was not holy. And that you are the one true holy God. And so, Father, you show us your glory in varying degrees. And Lord, we ask that you would let us draw near to you. Your promise to us is sure. You tell us that if we were to draw near to you, that you will, in fact, draw near to us. As we draw near in the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we lift up our concerns, many sick or in the hospital, suffering with grief of losing loved ones and friends. And Father, we pray that you would make our hands fruitful, Lord, that we would love one another and it would make you uh, very happy that you would have joy in looking down upon us as a church. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to uh, fill up what was lacking in your sufferings, as we are told. In Philippians, Lord, that we actually are to take part in this ministry to die to ourselves and to love one another and glorify your name. We're promised, Lord, the only way the world will know that we are truly your disciples is by the love that we have for one another. And so, Father, in this prayer, we ask as a church, corporately collected and praying in one mind, that you would have this come to pass. Lord, that you would accomplish this work among us, that we would learn to love one another. And by so doing, Lord, that we would glorify your name in this community that you have placed us in remarkable ways. That the name of Jesus would be famous, revered, feared, loved, cherished. That you'd be glorified. So, Father, we ask that you would glorify your Son now through your word as we come to you in his name alone. Amen. And so here is... Uh, Ephesians 5, in this sermon series, we are talking about eating food, singing songs, and slaying the dragon. And there's lots of ways to talk about having a healthy church. Um, And I'm saying it's not exhaustive by any means, of course. Uh, We could be talking about other things, like how a church should have a healthy form of government, a good, sound church government that is uh, not domineering, but self-control with checks and balances. That would be a great sermon series. A church could have a lot of things, a strong theological conviction or confession. That makes for a healthy church. Or a church that's very dedicated and disciplined and deep in discipleship, training up people in the ways of Jesus. We should be about that as well. But what we're looking at here in this particular sermon series is not so much what things are to describe the church as being healthy, a healthy church culture, but but more More not defining, but actually describing in the sense of what a church smells like, what a church tastes like, and even today more pointedly, what a healthy church sounds like as we look at singing. We are called to sing, and this would be the sign of us being a healthy church culture. And we find that here in Ephesians 5. If you have your Bibles, or you can look on the screen uh, beside me there, this is God's Word. Therefore, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual morality 
and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there is God's word, where here is Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. Paul himself is presently imprisoned in Rome as he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. And he addresses them with what they must be doing in order to redeem their time, to make their life count, to do the things the right way. It's particularly a a letter to a whole church congregation. This is not a personal letter. It's not an individual letter. These letters were meant to be uh, collected and read publicly, as I just did at this moment, 2,000 plus years from the time of its authorship. That same Spirit of God that inspired the letter is also moving His church that these letters do not cease. They have not been made obsolete into the corners of history. They are alive. It is a living word. It is God's word. You read it here just as vividly as it would have been for the first Ephesians who received the parchment. This is what our charge is. This is uh, God's word to us. And we're told to walk three times in particular ways. We're told to walk in love. We're told to walk in light. And we're told to walk in wisdom. And so we'll unpack that to see what it means when we say we are to sing songs. How does this all play out or apply to us now as we were to sing? That that would be actually one of the greatest goals, the most important things you could ever do with your time, with your life. But it takes a little bit of light, a little bit of wisdom to understand what Paul is getting at. So perhaps you've heard... 
uh, there's like an old adage, uh, a, a, a somewhat of a wife's tale to say, when people are lost, and maybe you've been lost in the woods. I know I've been lost in the woods. I used to like go hiking uh, really far. I, I, I would go, uh, I would, uh, one friend of mine had a cabin up, uh, up north a couple hours, and I would literally, when I was young and like considering ministry, and I don't say this as a place of, of arrogance, uh, I would spend almost uh, five or six days by myself in a cabin just praying. I enjoyed it so much. But then um, that was before, you know, you actually have stuff to do with your time. <laughs> um, I couldn't get five minutes to uh, do anything now. Um, well, I hope that was interpreted well. Um, the, the, uh, but I would go into the woods and just, and just pray and, 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 and walk into woods I didn't know at all. I didn't grow up in that area and... And yeah, there were a few times I was like genuinely didn't know how I was going to get back to that cabin. I barely knew where it was. Um, they say when you're in the woods and you're lost, what we do, humanly speaking, is we, we actually tend to walk in circles. It really interested scientists a few years ago. They actually did a study on this back in 2009. And it's not just an old <clears throat> tale. It's not um, just a fable. It's actually true, uh, scientifically proven, that when we are lost, we walk in circles. That's just the human condition. That's what we do with our bodies. And they wanted to know why. Um, so uh, they put people in, in the woods in various ways. Um, if there was a sun or even a moon, uh, they could maybe walk somewhat of a straight line. They had a better chance if they were in the woods and not in the desert, because at least you could see trees and landmarks to orient yourself. If it was really dark, it was a cloudy day, they would walk in circles the whole time. And they even went so far as to blindfold everybody and put them in a very large plane and what they found out is if you're blindfolded, you think you're walking straight. And on average, they found out that you walk a tight circle of around 66 feet. That's what you do when you can't see the light. So just think about that. That's what, you, that's what your body does without light. You aimlessly, vainly, foolishly, and you don't even know it. It's deceptively foolish. You think you're walking straight, and you're walking in a nice little circle, 66 feet in circumference, in diameter. <clears throat> We're called, <coughs> I understand, that's how, that's how I wake up, that's how I wake up every morning. We're called to walk in the light. We're called to walk in the light. This is the verse. One time, he says, you were in darkness. Now you are in light. Walk, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. So we have cycles in our life. Every seven days we worship the Lord together. Now that would seem cyclical, but it's not. We're worshiping in the light. Every seven days... We are moving in a cycle, but only so much as a tire or a wheel moves in a cycle. We are moving somewhere cyclically. We are actually driving straight because we're worshiping in the light. We're looking upon the face of Jesus Christ every seven days. And that seems cyclical. And yes, it is. But it's cyclical with intentional direction. It's cyclical in the sense that we actually have light orientation. We are moving. We are going somewhere. That's the pattern of the Christian life. That's what we are doing actually in this very moment. We are looking to the light so that we would not waste our life. 
That we would not just meander around our whole, because all of your life is broken up into weeks of seven. And all you have to do is take your eyes off Jesus and be from 16 to 66 and wonder what you did with your life. You're going to die soon and you have not even looked to Jesus. And you've just been walking in circles about 66 feet in circumference. We are not doing that. We are walking in the light, Paul says. So the prism, our life is like a prism. See, our light is light in the Lord, he says. Now you are, you are, this is an amazing thing to say. You are light in the Lord. So you are a triangulated prism, let's say. Jesus Christ is light. If you are in Christ, that light is shining through you. And then it refracts, Paul points out here, the fruit of the light is goodness, righteousness, and truth. That breaks off into a hue of color in which you express the pure white, holy light of Christ in real time, flesh, and blood. And it breaks off in these three categories of absolute goodness, generosity, the generosity of your life. If you are a generous, magnanimous person, you are evidencing the light of Christ who gave his own blood for you. If you have righteousness, that is, if you are performing right actions, you are refracting as a prism. You actually become light of the Lord in the real world. And of course, the third, he says, is true. Not only that, but right belief. Not right action, but right thinking. If you are thinking the thoughts of God, if you are beginning to learn the wisdom of the word of God, you, by constant, you have to. You are light. Paul's not saying choose to be light, try to be light. He's saying you are light if you're in the Lord. You will think correctly. You will conform your mind to the word of God. And that will change everything. So this this is our call to reflect, or rather, even more appropriately, refract the light of God into the variegated ways in which you particularly are called to live like no one else is called to live. You've been given particular gifts, calling, job, family, circumstances, situation. You must love the Lord that way. You must reflect his light that way. No one else, no one else can do that. And so there, if we walk in the light, we would fulfill our days, be wise to do that. And so the amazing transition from all this is that he begins to think not so much about light, but love. The very beginning opens up where Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. So, You are light in the Lord, so you walk in that light. But you also are beloved children in the Lord, therefore you walk in love. Children of light, children of love. These two things always come together in Scripture. Love and light, light and love, you cannot have one without the other. 1 John 1.5 says, The message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. 1 John 4.8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is light. God is love. You're united to God. You are beloved by him in the cross of Jesus Christ. You have his light. You have his knowledge. You walk that out. And so he makes it immediately practical. And this was so beautiful about maybe in our, our age or at least sometimes in the church culture, definitely not our broader culture, but the church culture can be a little um, puritanical in the way that we just choose not to talk about sex. Just like, sex? That, I've never heard of that word. I, 
I mean, like, the, is the world talking about that? Like, we, in the church, we don't, what's, how do you spell that? The, look, look at, look at Paul. <clears throat> Walk in the light and therefore know, that means zero, sexual morality. None. See, he says sexual impurity <clears throat> should not even be named among you for those of you who are called saints. The Greek is hagios. That is the word saint, which sounds like the word holy. You claim to be a saint, you are saying you are holy. It is impossible to be called holy and to be in sexual morality. To be in sexual morality means that you have not been in the light. Because you can't have both. And then this very dramatic, straightforward warning. The warning is everyone who is sexually immoral or impure will have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. The pure warning. And he says, he, he, he backs that by saying, do not be deceived. Because what I just said, you're going to try to finagle it some way. Don't be deceived with empty words. See, it's, it's not empty words if what we're talking about is real. Now, Paul is not in prison for poetry. Okay? He's writing this letter in prison because he preached that Jesus was the light of the world. But that's just a metaphor, right? Jesus is light. Oh, that, oh, that's great, Paul. Like, I'll clap for you. That was really poetic. You're so clever. They imprisoned him because he said Jesus was light. Because it transforms people when the gospel is preached. Hence, Jesus really is light. If Paul was just giving superfluous and, and, and flowery phrases about some Jewish God, Rome would not care. The problem was, when he preached that Jesus Christ was the light of the world, people's eyes opened up, and light shone in them. They repented of their sins. The whole entire culture and economy shattered because of it. And then Paul got in trouble. Paul is not in prison for poetry. And he's saying, this is not an empty word. Do not be deceived with an empty word. When you hear me say, Jesus is light, and you are light in Christ, I'm not trying to make you feel better. I'm not trying to write an inspirational book that could be a New York Times bestseller. What I'm saying is, you really either are in the light of Christ, or you are not. And if you are in the light of Christ, then you are mortifying your sin. Your sin is exposed, and it is gone, and you are dealing with it. If you are not dealing with your sin, you do not have the light of Christ. You do not have love from the cross. It is not real. These are empty words. Do not be deceived by these empty words. Paul was in prison because people were getting converted. That is, they were coming from darkness into light. If that wasn't happening, no one would care what Paul was saying. They would literally ignore him like they ignore everyone else. But people were seeing the light of Christ as he preached the light of Christ, and they were being converted from darkness to light. Paul says, you once were darkness. You once were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. And he says, this is not an empty word. Because you know exactly what I'm talking about. You are different. I did not come to being a soliloquy. 
I, bre- I brought a new creation in the preaching of the gospel. And so here we have the Canadian bill titled Bill uh, C-4, which was passed a few months ago at the end of the year. Um, it uh, was the Parliament of uh, Canada that passed this bill uh, to censure what they call conversion therapy. Conversion therapy, as the bill is defined, you could look it up online, uh, censures anyone up to five years in prison, right next to Paul, for doing this. If you were to counsel someone to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, if you were just to say, heterosexuality is a good thing, you could go to jail. If you were to change a person's gender identity to cisgender, or if you were to counsel someone, that is in the context of someone seeking Christian counsel, if you were to say you could change your gender expression to conform to the sex of your birth, five years in prison. And they call this, see, the godless, silly culture, I mean, does Canada even have a tank? Come on. Like, it's Canada. Like, they are going against God to say, this is not how things work. Like, they understand conversion means conversion. They call it conversion therapy. The only problem with this law is no one has inheritance with Christ who takes on sexual morality. Other than that, it's a great law. Except for the whole thing of like God being holy and him having a perfect standard and not being deceived by vain or vain words, empty talk. We as Christians are not talking vainly. You once could be in darkness and you can be in light. And if you preach that in Canada, you could go to jail. Okay? Why do they care? Because it's true. People can see the light. If no one was being converted, no one would care. The problem of all of this also ties into speech, not just sexuality, but the reality that we are to be holy like Jesus is. And so he says, No filthiness or foolish speech or crude joking should be even named among you. Nothing. Shameful. Even to speak of what they do in secret. The difference between gossip and reproof is that you actually would care to redeem the situation. So if if you are speaking about somebody and it is your business to speak about somebody, then go ahead because you want to address them and make them better. So-and-so is doing this. They shouldn't be doing this. All right, let's fix that. But if you say, so-and-so shouldn't be doing this, and someone else says, that's good, let's go talk to them, and they say, oh, I don't want to do that, then you never had intentions of actually redeeming them. You just wanted to talk about them. And this is the idea of our speech, that it should be pure. If we walk in light, if we walk in love, it affects not only our sexual appetites, but even what comes out of our mouth. Our words have to be holy. They have to be if we actually are, in the light, the love of Christ. And so here's where singing enters. This is where Paul, speaking to the whole church, this is a corporate letter to the whole church body, collective, saying, now you guys need to get serious about this. This is what you have to be doing. This is your high priority. And I hope, and for the rest, for, we could say this, and it's kind of a joke, that was the introduction. I mean, I, that was like the introduction of the sermon, so I hope 
You know, I mean, we could have a, there's bathrooms back there if you need them, but <laughs> the reality is, seriously, this is where Paul was negative. Don't do this. Don't do this. Now he's going to bring a positive and say, you need to do this. This has to be, I hope, to impress upon our minds the importance of what he's to say. Walk in love. All right, he told us that. Walk in light. All right, we went through that. Now he transitions to say, walk in wisdom. You need to have wisdom in the way you walk. You're walking meaning the manner of your life, the, the going and coming of your life, your style of living. What is the way you live? Do you have wisdom in the way you do that? Obviously, love and light. He says this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. As sons of light, therefore we walk in the light. If we walk in the light, we have to, by necessary consequence, have wisdom. I could, when we do a, a game here sometimes with the youth group, that we turn all the lights down, they have to find pieces inside the church, and some have to hide pieces and whatever. It's complicated. It's not worth explaining. The point of the illustration is, when those lights are down, kids are like killing themselves over these chairs. Just the honest truth. Like, they just are trying not to get, it's a tag game in the dark. It can't go wrong. But like, they're running around and they hit into these chairs and it's just terrible. The reality is, God turns the lights on. Right? You're walking in the light of Christ. And all of a sudden, oh, I'll walk this way down the aisle. I won't walk that way. Right? You... The, the, the result of having illumination from the Holy Spirit is that you begin to walk wisely. You know where the pitfalls are. You know what to do and what not to do. And you start to discern the difference here. Not just the difference between what is evil, what is sinful, and what is righteous, and what is good. But, and this is wisdom, you begin to learn what is good, what is better, and what is best. Not everything is just a black and white issue. Not everything is just sin, folly, and righteousness, and holiness. Some things are just better than other things, but they're both not wrong. That is where Paul is bringing them. To see this wisdom. To walk in the wisdom of the light of Christ. See, he goes on to say, make the best use of your time. That's wisdom. You can do a lot of good things. And none of them have to be sinful. But what is the best thing you could do? What is the best use of your time? Exagorazo is the word for best use. It's the same word used for redeem. So it could be translated, and the NIV does translate it, make the best use of your time could be redeem the time. Redeem your time. Jesus has redeemed you with his blood. Your life is bought and paid for. Now, make that investment the highest of the highest. Get him the greatest return for saving your life. Turn your life into every minute of redemption, accruing the investment value capital of God's own shed blood for you. Now that's different between diversifying your portfolio or just putting it all on the ground. And Jesus said, don't invest in the ground. There was the one man who took all his money and put it in the ground and held on to it. There's another man who had ten talents, five talents, he was given five more. This is the walking of wisdom. I could do this, I could do that. What would be the best use of my life? So that Jesus would be the most glorified, the most magnificent. That he, I would have riches to pour at his feet when I came into the heavenly throne. 
That's the question of wisdom. And so Paul directs them to the last thing that any of us would think. Sing. Sing. That is amazing. Go do this. Go do that. Start this ministry. Give this money. And he says, of anything you could do, some of the best use of your time is to sing to him. You don't know what's happening in a spiritual realm when we sing. You don't know what glory and honor is being thrown to Jesus if you would lift your voice and sing from your heart. If he saved you and he bought you, shouldn't you sing about that? Shouldn't you be passionate about that? And he says the best way, the wise way to walk in wisdom, to make the best use of your time is to sing. The point is to impress us like a hot metal searing and sealing the wax of our mind that before we would leave, we would know that this is a big deal, that we have an an alternate and unwise view of music in our culture. And we need to get rid of that before we would leave today. That music is not the wisdom to know truly what music is for. The wisdom is not a symbol of just emotional expression, which is the way we usually understand it in the culture. And that is not wrong. Music is a symbol of emotional expression. But it's not See, the difference between wisdom is not knowing what's right and wrong. Wisdom is knowing what's true and partially true or completely true, right? So it's not wrong to say that music is not an emotional expression, a personal emotional expression, a symbol. When I was at a birthday party last night, we could have said, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, like that. We didn't do that. See, this, everyone starts singing. He's five years old. He's nervous. All this, you, know, you know what it's like to get your birthday song. You're like, why'd you do that? You're at a restaurant. Your friends are like, I'm, I'm really angry with you that you did that. They're here singing around our table. See, it is bringing attention that brings, that brings uh, nervousness or makes them uncomfortable. Then everyone laughs, blow out candles, and it actually lifts. It makes it happier. It's saying we're celebrating you. It's saying something different. You can't do that just by saying it. You have to sing it. So there's something to the singing. It's important, right? We, we, you're, 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 you're trying to work out or in a really energetic mode. You're going to listen to the Eye of the Tiger. You just got to. Try, try, to listen, try to listen to a movie with the sound off. It's not scary anymore. Doesn't matter who's around the next corner. There's no deep music. It's not erratic. It's not suspenseful anymore. Music functions that way. We're not saying music doesn't function that way. What we're saying is to walk in wisdom to know really what is the purpose of our music as a church when we come together corporately to worship, to worship. If we are left with these contrivances, we are deceived. We are not walking wisely. We are not getting what Paul would be saying here. That music is meant for more. Corporate worship, the gathering of public worship. Music is worshipful. It's for one another and it's for warfare. None of those apply to a birthday song. Our music in this moment in time now 
It is primarily for worship of the one true God. Secondarily, it is for one another. And tertiary, it is war. We are fighting a war. We sing a melody to redeem the time. This is the best use of your time. This is the most important thing you will do all week. You know that logically. We are claiming that our voices are approaching the throne of heaven together in the name of Jesus. How does that compare to your Tuesday afternoon filling up your tank at the gas station? What else are you going to do this week that is not this? What is the most greatest honor that you've ever been given is this. To approach the Lord in worship. The rest of the week is all downhill. We are here to worship him. And it has to be in heart. We sing to the Lord. We sing to the Lord, he said. It is to the Lord we sing. Therefore, this is entirely different. This is not just any song. And it is in our heart. There is a song within a song. You could come and sing the song, but not sing the song. You could come and sing it, but it's not from your heart. And it doesn't have to be all of your emotions wrapped up into it. You just have to sing it in such a way that you know you'd be willing to die for the song. Not because of the song. Because of what you're singing and to whom you're singing. If you would rather die than not sing the truths of the gospel, then you're singing with your heart. Whether you do with your hands up, your knees bowed, or just a complete stoic like this, it doesn't matter. As long as you really would lay your whole life to this, then it's from the heart and it's worship. This is what we're called to do. There's nothing greater than this. It's our personal expression. And this is redeeming the time. That's why it is redeeming the time. There is nothing else that you could do that is greater. But it's more than that even. We are called to worship, to sing to one another. We're called to address, it says, one another gathered together in public worship. If you say, I don't feel like it today. I don't feel like worshiping today. I don't feel like singing today. I don't like this song today. We went back to the problem. That's not what music's for. Not here, not now. Someone needs you to sing. Someone needs to hear your voice singing next to them. Someone needs to see you raise your hands and mean it and demonstrate. By the way, look at me. Maybe you're not feeling it today. Maybe you're not full of the Spirit today. Let me help you. Let me lift your arms for you. We are here to worship together. We need to hear each other singing in each other's souls the truths of God, eternal truths that we will sing forever of eternity. We must start that now. And we need that now. So we sing for one another. You have to sing. Redeem the time. Sing. Sing to one another. And of course, and I don't mean to throw too much shade on churches that turn the lights down low. And that pun was intended. I planned that all week. <laughs> but we worship with the lights on. And we do that on purpose because your eyes are drawn to light. It's not what's up here. We're worshiping what's going on in here. We are approaching the Lord. We need to see each other approaching the Lord. 
We, we don't turn the sound super high. It's to the point where it's supposed to be leading us. It is a, the, the music team, gifted and a tr treasure to this church, is to lead you to sing, not to drown you out your singing. You are called to sing to one another. And so here we are, redeeming the time. And lastly, with all of this, our worship, our worship is warfare. And we saw this before last week with Joshua. They take down that wall with their voices. Now, do you think that is normative or a precursor or a hint to what God might be doing in the world? Or was that just a one-time thing God wanted to do one time with the city of Jericho? No. We will get into the book of Revelation. All the book of Revelation is God's praises resounding in the heavenly hosts and the world being destroyed. There's seven bowls there's seven trumpets. There's seven seals. What come out of each one of those is not good for the world. Everyone's like, that's bad. Those riders look scary. The locusts, the thunder, the hail. The world's being destroyed. But every time the vision is lifted to heaven, it's just songs. They're praising him. The praises of God is the destruction of the sinful world of men. If there was any theme to Revelation to take away without a doubt, that is one of them. What happened to the walls of Jericho was only the beginning of how God is destroying the world of rebellious man in his own arrogant autonomy and the Canadian parliament. The Christians sing, we don't care about tanks, we don't care about war. Our worship is our war and it is the greatest power of it all if we were to sing. If we were, as Paul says, redeem the time. Redeem the time. The word here, he says, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, sing these. And that, that means, at the very least, that largest book in the Bible, the book of psalms. We were to sing those psalms. The word psalmois, used here, has two meanings. It means to pluck a string. And the word is uniquely used to refer to plucking the string of a bow and plucking the string of an instrument. The same word. Our worship is our warfare. The book of Psalms are songs of war. Psalm 89 says this. No foe shall tribute take from him. Speaking of the king of Judah, no wicked cast him down. His adversaries I will crush, strike haters to the ground. Said no Chris Tomlin song anywhere. But that's a normal song. We don't understand that God is holy. We, we bemoan and cry the fact that we say there's no understanding of the fear or reverence of holiness of God. Sing the Psalms, you'll figure it out. We don't understand why the Christian church, there's so many Christians in America. How come they don't care about actually being godly in the culture? Well, have you listened to a Christian song recently? It doesn't sound anything like the Psalms. Our, we don't understand that our worship is warfare. We sing. Our singing is not singing. It is praying. And if it's praying, it's approaching the Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies. 
We have to sing. Redeem the time. Redeem the world. Call down God's blessings from heaven through music. That's what we are called to do. So Jericho crumbled this way under the weight of voices, with the weight of sound waves. And Jesus, after he finished his last meal with his disciples, sang the Hallel Psalms, went to the cross, and conquered the world, singing the Psalms. And we will do that again shortly. In Revelation 19, he heard a voice of a great multitude, which we will try to match as we stand Like the roar of many waters singing hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigneth. So please, I invite you to stand as we sing to our Lord, the Savior, Lord of glory and the lover of our souls. Dear Father God, we thank you for this. We pray, Father, that you would help us to approach you in singing from week to week. Lord, we pray that you impress upon our minds this great privilege that we would pass over many kingdoms, many powers, and many privileges in order to do this one thing. That if we were to sing with our hearts, we would sing even meaning our own life for these words. That Jesus is Lord, and he reigns forever. And let us try to match your glory in any way we can, Lord, with our voices, as your spirit gives us aid. Amen.